The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Lawfare intern Ajay Sarma with a podcast from the Lawfare Archives for August 14, 2021. On August 6, John Rizzo, a former CIA lawyer, passed away at his home in Washington, D.C. Rizzo once referred to himself as the legal architect of the proposed list of CIA interrogation techniques and said he played the lead role in obtaining legal approval for their use. He openly discussed how he saw the torture of terror suspects as a necessary moral trade-off to glean potentially life-saving information from detainees, going to great lengths to ensure that the government would view the methods as legal under domestic and international law. For today's episode from the archives, I went back to April 2014, when Lawfare Editor-in-Chief Ben Wittes spoke with Rizzo about the controversy over the CIA's interrogation techniques what the career of a CIA lawyer entails, and how the agency's work interacts with the law. They also discussed Rizzo's book, Company Man, 30 Years of Controversy and Crisis in the CIA, which serves as an insider account of how the agency evolved during a significant period in American history. Ben's interview with Rizzo serves as a valuable opportunity to hear candid reflection on some of the most controversial practices in American legal history. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 19th, 2014. That was former CIA Acting General Counsel John Rizzo writing his own obituary from Pepperdine University. Rizzo has a new book out. You probably read something about it. I have a review of it up on Lawfare today. The book is called Company Man. I caught up with Rizzo at a conference at Pepperdine earlier this month. We talked about the book. We talked about the persistence of the interrogation controversies. We talked about the endless cycle of the CIA's being asked to do unpleasant things and then held to account for doing them. And yes, we talked about the NSA controversies as seen through the schadenfreude of a CIA lawyer. It's the Lawfare Podcast, Episode 71, A Conversation with John Rizzo. What made you want to write a book? It's not something that CIA lawyers normally do, and um, give us a sense of it. Yeah, well, actually, I'm the first CIA lawyer that's uh, written a memoir uh, of, of uh, his or her career, and actually, that's one of the reasons I decided to uh, do it. Um, my career, uh, the book is called Company Man, uh, 30 Years of Controversy and Crisis in the CIA, and I decided to write it or at least try 
at least I embraced the idea of, of writing a book shortly after my retirement at the uh, late 2009. And I, in my uh, period there of decompression, um, my last several years at the agency um, were quite turbulent what with all the controversy over 9-11, uh, post 9-11 actions by the agency. Uh, so, so my first couple three months, I was sort of, I was decompressing, and uh, the thought came to me that uh, of all the CIA memoirs written, all these insider CIA memoirs written, one there had never been one written by a lawyer, uh, and two there had not, never been any written uh, that covered the span of time that encompassed my career. Uh, I joined in the wake of the church committee hearings in the mid-70s and retired uh, uh, in the wake uh, of the uh, demise of the uh, post-9-11 terrorist interrogation program. All sorts of controversies uh, uh, honeycombed throughout that career. And it occurred to me that my career actually tracked the modern evolution of the CIA. Uh, I came in at the birth of Congressional Oversight, for instance, and the, the birth of the executive order uh, governing CIA collection of information on U.S. persons. So I thought, I thought it might be uh, a new uh, perspective uh, to, to use the arc of my career through stories, and that's what the book is, stories, uh, to reflect how the CIA changed uh, and also reflect how the CIA, frankly, seems destined to be always embroiled in some, um, some flap or another. So that's why I thought it would be a useful, if not unprecedented, uh, contribution to the genre. So the book opens with an account of the destruction of um, the Abu Zubaydah interrogation tapes. Uh, for those readers who have not read the book, this is not a book that uh, shies away from, from controversy, um, and you kind of dive right into it. Um, the implication is that at some level, that incident is emblematic of a larger pattern. The larger pattern being, um, I take it, that, that the agency is asked to do things that the, that the political system then will not take responsibility for having asked it to do, and that it then has to uh, adjust to the certainty of exposure and whiplash. And I'm, I'm interested in your account of that problem, which I take it to be inherent in this idea that the agency is destined to be embroiled in scandal. Yeah, I, I, uh, I led the, off the book with it, I mean, actually for a couple of reasons. It is a the destruction of the so-called torture uh, videotapes, so it's, it's still reasonably fresh in certainly people's minds who follow this uh, National security issues and CIA issues. So I thought it would, I thought it would, it would be a way to <clears throat> to show immediately to the reader uh, what you what you uh, just described, Ben, that phenomenon, and also the role. I was chief legal counsel at the time. The role 
the lawyer plays the CIA, which is to basically jump into the middle of these brewing <clears throat> or even um, uh, incipient controversies and become, for better or worse, immersed in all of the details and immersed in the, in the fallout once the inevitable flap hits. I also used to, frankly, I mean, quite honest, as, you know, sometimes the CIA is sometimes its own worst enemy, the way it handles some of these uh, controversies. And that's, you know, that's part of the legacy of the of CIA as well. So it was a combination of all those reasons. This issue is still going on. I mean, you know, not the destruction of tapes issue, but right now the Senate Select Committee is, you know, but locking horns with the director over the release of this report, as well as the substance of this report. Uh, 12 years after the fact, 10 years after the fact, six years after the program ends, when does the controversy over this program end? What does it take uh, for us to reach some kind of settlement of the question of whether the CIA did the right thing or the wrong thing and, and how much of the wrong thing in the context of of post-9-11 interrogation stuff. Yeah, it is remarkable, isn't it, the seeming durability uh, uh, of this of this uh, subject. I mean, uh, just, just to give, just sorry to interrupt, you, we are sitting here at Pepperdine Law School where you're going to give a speech this afternoon and there are security people walking all over this building because the Code Pink people have threatened to disrupt the talk, <clears throat> right? I mean, you, you know, it, there's some <laughs> sense in which this is all very much still live. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious just what you make of it and what's the point where we get to some kind of institutional resolution? Yeah, I, you know, I will admit, I mean, from the beginning, I knew this program was going to be controversial. I knew that before it started, that we went down that road. Sooner or later, this would become a huge issue. I did not imagine that it would remain such a such a third rail in in American national security and and just straight out politics. Five years after the program was unequivocally and publicly uh, ended. I mean, just last year, of course, the movie Zero Dark Thirty came out, and. You know, you will remember the reaction to all that. It, it the depiction of the the uh, interrogation scenes in that film sparked once again this furious uh, um, emotional uh, debate, uh, uh, certainly in 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 Washington about the about the morality and efficacy uh, of the program. I mean, it's, it has had. It has had uh, remarkable uh, legs. I mean, I have no doubt. I have no doubt, Ben, that that what the first paragraph of my obituary will read: John Rizzo, who approved a controversial CIA program post nine eleven to to interrogate sub, uh, suspects that program that some many observers remarked as tortured, died today. I mean, are I, you com I, are you comfortable <laughs> with that? Well, I'm. Res I mean, I'm resigned to it. I. Uh, you know, this is, for better or worse, is the extent, I mean, the reason I became a public figure after 25 years of being happily in the shadows as a CIA lawyer was because of this program. 
Um, I mean, in all honesty, I don't think I would have, uh, I don't think publishers would have been frankly interested in my, in my memoir, which, which covers my entire career, were it not for my becoming uh, this, this public figure so late in the career. So, uh, and so far as the reactions uh, I've gotten uh, when, I'm, when I'm out on speaking appearances, um, especially since you know, the book came out, um, you know, I, I, I knew going in that there would be, you know, there would be occasional demonstrations. And, uh, uh, I, you know, I, I've met uh, representatives of the Code Pink branch offices in uh, New York and San Francisco uh, prior to today. So, I mean, I, I, you know, I accept it all. I, as I said, I wouldn't have predicted it. But uh, it just seems, it's, it's something about this, this idea, this, this program, that still arouses such intense controversy uh, and, and, and arguments and counter-arguments and counter-charges and charges on both sides. And as you say, and now we have this, this uh, imbroglio over the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee report. Do you, do you understand <clears throat> the degree of feeling that people still have about it, or is it sort of mystifying to you? I mean, you say you knew this was going to be radioactive from, from the beginning. Um, the thing that surprises me about the controversy is not that we have an ongoing moral controversy over, you know, what can you and can't you do in the way of physical coercion of detainees without violating some, either some moral code or the text of any specific legal code. The thing that surprises me is that 12 years down the road, we have no factual agreement, apparently, even among pe the people most infamously familiar with the program, either from the CIA side or from the Senate side. Uh, we have no factual agreement as to the contours either of you know, what precisely was done or how effective what was done was, or who is lying about what aspects of it. And it seems like all, all of the basic factual information after all of this time is still entirely disputed. Yeah. Yeah, well, of course, the, the techniques that were originally authorized that, that, that was, this, you know, that have been, of course, long since declassified in, those, in the so-called torture memos uh, that were, <clears throat> that were uh, prepared by the Department of Justice uh, at my request, and which, uh, you know, lucky guy that I am, were all addressed to me personally. Um, I mean, those are on the public record, have been on the public record for several years. But you, the, the other aspect is that you mentioned, I think, is, is critical, which is the, the value of the program. You know, was it worth it? Did it produce results? Was it the sine qua non of foiling terrorist plots? I don't think that will ever be uh, frankly resolved. Both sides, I think, have taken their positions. There are not going to be any any other. I doubt the Senate report is going to settle that issue because obviously, at least to me, from not having seen it, but it seems to be coming at the at the subject from a, from a definite, in my view, preconceived angle that the whole program was basically useless. Um, so that's the. I mean that's the MacGuffin of all this, um, and and you know, put it another way, 
Could the same results derived from the interrogation program, could they have been obtained from high-level detainees uh, without having to resort to ever, by any measure, brutal tactics? And, you know, I think that is, I mean, that is unknowable. I mean, I'm not prepared to say that absolutely it would have been impossible to get any information out of these guys without the program. Uh, but to my mind, I mean, the, I mean the, the key thing I think people need to keep in mind is, is the context of the times. I mean, how long, in 2002, how long would it have taken to get the same information out of Zubaydah and, and a few months later Khalid Sheikh Mohammed using normal FBI-style interrogation techniques? Perhaps, perhaps it would have come, uh, but when? I mean, these guys weren't going to, weren't in the mood to just start coughing up uh, information. And time was the one thing we had in those first months and year after 9/11. Time was one thing we didn't have because the, the fear was pervasive that another attack could be right around the corner. So when you look back on it, uh, and I and I then want to go way back to the larger narrative arc of your book, but when you look back on it, what do you think were the CIA's big mistakes in the program? What do you think were your mistakes in, in, in advising the agency? And how much of it do you think was just the inevitable arc that the CIA would be ordered to be aggressive, would be aggressive, and then would would take the whiplash when society second-guessed itself. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, one of the themes of the book is, is the idea of the political pendulum always swinging at CIA, seemingly in the wrong direction at any given time, lopping off our, hit, our heads. Uh, as you recall, in the immediate wake of the 9-11 attacks, the, the opprobrium was, was intense and bipartisan on Capitol Hill, uh, and in the media, the CIA in the years pre-9-11, in the run of 9-11, risk, was risk-averse, wasn't aggressive enough, wasn't imaginative enough to, to have, the, have the guts, frankly, to take risks and to, to aggressively infiltrate Al-Qaeda and, and, there, and therefore uh, find out about 9-11 and deter it. So that was the that was the drum roll that, uh, you know, inevitably as, as the years went on and there was no second wave of attacks, the the mantra shifted from protect us at all costs to, wait a minute, what what have you guys been up to anyway? Uh, and that was that was uh, that was uh, inevitable. Um, in terms of my mistakes, I'm sure I made mistakes. I mean, I to me the my biggest regret and my biggest mistake about about 9-11, uh, the reaction to 9-11, how we handled the interrogation program specifically, is that, you know, the White House at the outset uh, insisted that the knowledge about the interrogation program, about the techniques, be limited to the so-called gang of eight, the leadership of the Congress. I mean, that was a White House call. It was, as you know, under the law, it's a call the President can make. but. That was, I think, that was a grievous mistake, and it's, and I hold myself partially responsible for that because we could have pushed back, I could have pushed back, 
You know, I had been at the agency long enough, as I say, I knew that this thing was going to be politically toxic at some point. I should have pushed back much harder to insist much earlier that, at a minimum, the full membership of the intelligence committees had to be had to be briefed, not on these, you know, sporadic sessions that we had with the Gang of Eight off the record, but you know, full committee hearings, transcripts, the whole nine yards, and therefore, and by that way, at least have a have a document, undisputed record, that the committees knew about these techniques, that they either approved of them, or if if you know they they were as appalled by them as they years later claimed to be, go on the record and, and say that and cut off the money for them. Uh, but as a result, we have this ambiguity uh, now, and we have the as I say the political consensus crumbled, and we were left exposed. So. That, more than anything else, is the um, biggest grit, uh, biggest mistake I think I made in terms of uh, uh, trying to trying to look ahead to see what would what was what would be the the best way to ensure some sort of consensus one way or the other about this program. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. 
And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. One of the oddities of this whole debate over a long time, partly because tough measures are associated with conservatives, and partly because it was the Bush administration that did this stuff, um, is that the... The program is almost entirely defended in the public arena by conservatives, um, and it is pretty uniformly reviled by liberals. It's one of the most politically and in a partisan sense divisive of the war on terror issues, in contrast, say, to drone strikes, right, which have critics and defenders in both political movements. And the result is that, you know, you're sort of listed constantly among, you know, Dick Cheney, David Addington, John Yoo, right? People who are sort of, you know, have very strongly ideological views. But you're a career guy who kind of worked for the agency and administrations of both parties. What are your what are your basic political commitments? Like, who are you as a political animal? Well, I... uh... You know, I was born. I was born and raised in Massachusetts. Uh, I've lived in Washington D.C. since 1972. Neither of which are hardly re- Republican bastions. I grew up as a Kennedy Democrat. I still, to this day, believe that the 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 death of Robert Kennedy was was 
you know, one can quantify these things. The greatest political tragedy uh, in my uh, in my formative years for the country. Um, he's still my political hero. Uh, you know, since 1972, uh, I've been registered as an independent. And as you pointed out, I never considered myself a political guy. I joined the CIA in 1975, uh, worked under seven presidents of both political parties, uh, I voted for Republicans for president, and voted for Democrats for president. So, to you're right, I, 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 uh, I, found it, I, I found it somewhat bemused by being identified so late in my career with this, you know, with this, you know, I think largely admirable man, but still so, so lumped into this ideological conservative bin. Uh, I mean, I think part of that was, was a, you know, attributed to the fact that I, you know, late in my career, I was nominated to the, you know, to be the permanent CI General Counsel, and it was a presidential appointment. I was nominated by President Bush, and it was right in 2007 when the program was at its most contentious uh, and, and controversial, and I was immediately viewed, certainly by all the Democrats on the Hill, as a, as a, you know, a Bush. Bush lieutenant, a Bush loyalist, uh, which you know, I never considered my, I never considered myself a Republican. Certainly, has it forced you to acquire a political identification in your own mind that you didn't previously have? I mean, do you do you think now of one side as sort of your team in this regard, and the other side as the opposing team, or, or have you could have yeah. consciously resisted that? Well, I mean, certainly in the foreign policy, national security arena, I mean, philosophically, I, I guess, I mean, I would clearly be aligned with the more conservative wing of the party. Of course, when the conservative wing of the Republican Party is a moving target, I don't know where, <laughs> where Rand Paul fits on, fits on that spectrum, but sure, I'm probably there. Um, you know, I, domestically, I still, I think, I'm still more aligned with the with the Democratic Party principles uh, than I am the Republican Party principles. I mean, I, you know, do you remember Scoop Jackson? The old idea of being a Scoop Jackson Democrat, very, you know, liberal in in terms of the domestic side, but very hawkish on the foreign policy side. I guess that's roughly how I describe myself now. So tell us how you. How you came to be at the CIA and and um, about sort of some of the larger narrative arc of the book, which which actually you know tracks a lot of a lot of years and a lot of uh, political disputes between the agency and and Congress, about which you uh, mostly through stories tell a you know, develop a thesis, right? And I, so give us a sense of the, the larger story and the thesis that emerges from it. Yeah, well, first of all, in terms of how I, how I came to apply to CI in the first place in, uh, in 1975, you know, all I, can, all I can best describe it as a shot in the dark. I didn't know really any, well, I certainly didn't know anyone in CIA. I didn't know all that much about CIA. I mean, back in the mid-70s, CIA was still a relatively shrouded organization in terms of what was in the public record. I joined because um, I was a young lawyer, a couple of years out of law school, a lawyer in the Treasury Department. My first job was a decent job, but, you know, I was young, ambitious, 
bureaucracy of treasury was stultifying and it was restless. And it this sense of restlessness coincided with the church committee hearings that was were being telecast uh, uh, in large chunks on TV at the time. And this, as you will recall, was the first really public exposure of CIA um, actions, follies, misadventures, misdeeds in the 50s and 60s, the assassination plots and such. And like everyone else, I was watching these proceedings on television, being alter alternately, I guess, fascinated and repelled, thinking, well, I thought a couple of things. Was this what the CIA was really like? I mean, this all I, all I had to go on before that was the, the James Bond movies and the pulp novels, neither of which I was in fact out of, by the way. But the second reaction I had was, I don't even know if CIA is lawyers, but watching this, uh, I have a feeling that if they don't, they're going to need some. How and many did they have? They had... I did not know this at the time, obviously, but at the time of those hearings, there were 10 lawyers in the office, all of whom had been there a considerable amount of time, mostly in their you know, uh, early to mid-50s, had never worked anywhere else except at CIA. Uh, by the time I walked in the door a year later, approximately after all the security processing, I was the... Um, I believe I was the 16th lawyer hired. What I didn't realize, maybe the 17th, what I didn't realize when I walked in the door is that six months or a year before, there only, only had been 10, and that I was in effect the first wave of new, of so-called new blood that CI was gonna bring into the legal office. Um, so by the time you left, how many lawyers were in the GC's office? There were uh, 125, and I suspect they, that number is probably closer to 150, 160. So, I mean, it's remarkable. The And that was one of the things I wanted to capture in the book, that it's remarkable about the proliferation of lawyers uh, in CIA during the, you know, the exponential increase during the course of my career. Uh, and also, frankly, the fact that all those lawyers still can't seem to keep CIA from getting itself into pickles from uh, time, time to time. And why is that? So, so Let's go to that sort of larger thesis. Why is there this recurrent cycle in which the CIA, no matter how many lawyers it has, can't stay out of trouble? Well, you know... <laughs> there are these agencies that, like, don't... Like, you know, and when DOD has... When DOD has, you know, occasional big problems with Congress. But it's over giant hierarch policy <laughs> questions like should we invade Iraq, right? Which are really presidential questions, not, you know, not agency level questions. Um, the day-to-day -day fabric of the relationship between DOD and, you know, and the Congress is not a cycle of, you know, uh, action goaded action and then recrimination. What is it about CIA that, that creates that cycle? Well, goaded action is actually a, a, a nice uh, pithy way of putting it. CIA, you know, CIA is a pointy spear of the national security and foreign policy establishment. It is, it is now and has always been uh, at the just complete discretion of whatever president of whatever party happened to be sitting at the Oval Office at the time. 
my experience was seven over the with presidents. Uh, there were seven during my time at CIA. Uh, is that sooner or later they turned to CIA uh, because CIA can do things in secret. They can do things the president wants CIA to do. They can do it in a way that they can uh, carry it out uh, not only uh, undercover, but in a way that 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 goes around that does not have to be subjected to normal the normal appropriations process or even or even congressional review. There are intelligence committees, but it's a limited. So it's a very seductive tool. And when presidents find themselves facing foreign policy crises, for instance, going back to President Carter, he was confronted with the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1980. He was confronted with the takeover of the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. Their first inclination is to turn to the CIA. Uh, President Reagan, his successor, was confronted with the, the increasing Soviet and Cuban influence in Central America, the Sandinista regime. So what do they do? They authorized CIA to undertake not intelligence collection missions, which is sort of in the institutional DNA of C CIA, and for which there has largely been a consensus, but these covert action programs, these, these, these stealthy, uh, messy, uh, long-running uh, secret programs that, you know, for any number of reasons, tend to blow up one way or the other, and there are always repercussions. And, and you know, CIA just seems inevitably uh, to get sucked into one of these things. Sometimes, you know, sometimes through no fault of its own, and sometimes they'll be as frank because they they screw something up. So what's what's an example of a case where it gets sucked in through no fault of its own? And what's an example of a case where, you know, it's a complete unforced error, self-inflicted wound sort of thing? <laughs> well, the second category is probably easier for me because uh, that's really what, where lawyers have to come to the fore. Uh, the Iran-Contra affair. Um, you know, that was uh, the CIA director at the time, this... this uh, this unforgettable character named William Casey, in many ways, the smartest CIA director I ever served under, but also a bit of a cowboy, a, a, a buccaneer. Uh, he involved the agency uh, in this initiative, covert initiative, uh, working closely with Oliver North in the NSC, to to this this scheme to secretly ship arms to to uh, to the Iranians. Uh, in a way that was intended to ultimately influence and, and facilitate the release of the U.S. hostages that were being held uh, with increasing frequency in the, uh, in the uh, early to mid-80s uh, in Lebanon. And then compounding that by using the proceeds from those arms sales to secretly divert funds to support the, the Contras in Nicaragua an action that was expressly forbidden by Congress at the time. Now, to my mind, I was mercifully lucky about many things in my career. Mercifully, I had taken a respite from, from my normal job of overseeing covert operations for that year of 1985. So I missed all of that. So I, I just think that was the agency, you know, totally shooting itself uh, uh, in the foot. Uh, in terms of Actions the CIA was directed to do that that became toxic through no fault of its own. 
you know, I think in some respects the initial um, program at lunch by President Carter and then the, certainly the ending was up considerably by President Reagan when he came in about funding the Mujahideen in uh, uh, Afghanistan. To, the idea was to repel the the Soviet uh, occupation, get the Soviets out of Afghanistan. You know, that in the short term was successful and one of the agencies historically, you know, more skillfully carried out uh, campaigns. On the other hand, it produced a whole generation of, of Mujahideen who, once the Soviets are out, turned their attention to the U.S., uh, against the U.S., including a very young uh, um, fellow named Osama bin Laden. And the agency was blamed for sort of, you know, perversely enough for being one of the gripes after 9-11 that we had created Al-Qaeda by our support to the Mujahideen 10 years uh, earlier. So. so which was the interrogation program? Was this a situation where the CIA, um, you know, the attraction of the CIA as the pointy spear for a president was, was, you know, so great that the agency was simply ordered and directed to do things that um, got it into trouble? Or is this a situation of a self-inflicted wound that the agency was sort of eager to do things that then got it into trouble and kind of blundered its own way into it? Well, you know, in fairness, basically it was a little bit of both. In fairness, the interrogation program the idea of it did not start in the White House. Uh, it started in CIA, in the Counterterrorism Center. So the, so the idea germinated in, in CIA. So we came up with the idea that these techniques were inevitable. They were the only thing that would elicit the, the information we needed from these high-level detainees to avert another attack. But on the macro level, of course, it, you know, the White House and, and I must say Congress had made it clear to CIA that they were to pull out all the stops in the post-9-11 era. Basically, do whatever, do, what, do whatever it took. The idea was to, to repel what everyone thought was, was another catastrophic attack around the corner and basically gave the CIA uh, carte blanche. I mean, to this day, Ben, I don't consider program for all the for all the the controversies called cause for all the you know frankly damage that the agency institutionally has taken for it I don't sit here today and consider it to have been a a blunder or a feckless exercise so what is the right posture given that history and all the history that you've watched when a president says Failure is unacceptable. Do everything lawfully at your disposal to prevent X. And there is a gap between what you're doing and what you as a lawyer think is lawfully available. Um, but you know that in that gap lies enormous controversy. controversy. Um, is the right answer for the agency, as you just described, to say, well, okay, what, what is the list of techniques that we can defend as lawful that we're not currently using? Or is the right answer to say, 
hey, we have to protect ourselves in the long run from the backlash that we know is coming. And, you know, we're, we should add to the White House's direction um, and institutionally long-term defensible as a criterion. I, I, like, what, what's the right direction when you get a direction like that? How, how should you think about it? Well, that's the conundrum, isn't it? You know, clearly, I took the the first route, which was to uh, not not stop the program before it started, which I believe I could have done, but to but to seek guidance about about the techniques that were being proposed. First and foremost, to whether or not you know they were lawful in the U.S. law. That was the entire reason why I went to the Office of Legal Counsel. Uh, as I said earlier, I knew deep down that that sooner or later this program was going to suck the agency into in, immense controversy. Um, uh, by the way, you know that would if there had been a second attack, mercifully there hadn't been. But if there had been a second attack, and when those list of techniques were discovered and exposed in the aftermath. I challenge everyone to, to assert that the same program would have been directed, namely that the program was too brutal, too tough. Oh no, everybody would have focused on the ones that you didn't approve. Yeah, yeah. The, the bug in the small box and... and yeah, uh, so I mean, it was a no-win situation. I mean, I just knew we were, we were going to, you know, one way or the other we were going to pay for this politically. But, um, you know, as a lawyer at CIA, and of course I was a chief lawyer, so the buck stopped with me. I thought, you know, and I still do, my, my chief response, two chief responsibilities. One is to ensure the agency activities are, are lawful under U.S. law, but two, advance the mission, and in this case, protect the country, uh, and allow agency people to do what they think is necessary to achieve those two ends. There is an agency right now that is experiencing exactly the pattern that you described for the CIA. Um, but it's not the CIA, it's NSA, right? Do much more, do everything you can, lean forward. We're shocked, shocked that you're surveilling lots of people. Um, and I'm interested for your thoughts on what NSA has been through over the last nine months. You've, they have since the period of the Church Commission, um, managed to keep their heads down while you guys have really been taking the flack for all kinds of scandals. Um, now they're kind of in the front lines. Um, what do you make of it? <laughs> well, I mean, the I will confess to a certain... There's a certain part of this that shows me to be perhaps petty and cynical, but I always, always here to CIA when I was, you know, in the middle of some firestorm or another that CIA you know, had gotten itself into or had been foisted upon CIA. I always had this grudging respect and envy for NSA, which was a much larger agency with a lot more money, but yet, as you say, it was basically operating uh, without without 
a blip on the political or legal uh, radar screen. I, was, I found that remarkable and admirable in many ways. Uh, I think the way the NSA uh, handled this, I mean, the Snowden business uh, when it first started, I think it, I think it, it betrayed a certain extent the unfamiliar just how unfamiliar territory NSA was on was in in this point this this political this open public political uh, uh, firestorm uh, and you know I think they had to they had to learn as they as they um, as they uh, went along I think some of the initial steps uh, uh, you yeah, know we're not we're not politically nimble frankly some of the appearances. Uh, Senior NSA officials and uh, made on Capitol Hill, uh, you know, I think, I think, uh, I think uh, backfired. I think they were caught on their heels. Uh, but you know, now we're seven or eight months into it, and you know, much like CIA, after the initial burst and the initial the initial um, criticism and 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 media exposures and all of that, I think NSA is beginning to. Uh, get its footing now, and and you know, and, and doing what they should be doing, proposing legislative and administrative uh, reforms to to um, to try to address and and mollify the the adverse uh, the adverse uh, publicity and criticism it's getting. So a lot of people in your book come off as hypocrites, um, people who drive the cycle that you describe. I'm curious, last question, end on, a, end on an upbeat note. Who were the people over this 30-year career at the political level, 35-year career at the political level, whom you came away with really admiring for uh, not playing into that cycle and for being uh, for urging the same activity prospectively that they turned out then to be willing to defend retrospectively. Well, the the intelligence committees. You know, I lived with various incarnations of the intelligence committees for over three decades, and you know, back in the in the halcyon days of the of the eighties uh, uh, and early nineties, there were real there were really Committees were, were were populated, especially the Senate Intelligence Committee, by by really bipartisan uh, giants. Uh, you know, men like John Glenn and David Bourne and Barry Goldwater, uh, John John Warner, uh, Sam Nunn. I mean, the list goes on. They were both Republicans and Democrats, and you know, when the agency screwed up, the criticism. Uh, you know, tended to be bipartisan, and in most cases deserved, and that was actually to us at the agency reassuring. I mean, you know, we the one thing we could expect was sort of fair, non apolitical treatment. You know, we've we've lost that in the uh, in the last well, I would say I would say in the last ten years since uh, since nine uh, eleven, everything now is used in a partisan uh, prism. Uh, so, uh, is that is there hope for the future? 
I tend, you know, I tend to think so. CI is a resilient organization. In terms of people, I really respect and getting away from the Capitol Hill side. But you know, my last CI director was uh, Leon Panetta. I only worked for him for about eight or nine months, um, which was eight or nine months longer than I thought I would be kept on. To my amazement, when the Obama administration came in, he asked me to stay. And he was, you know, he was of course a lifelong Democrat. I had made no secret, it was the first words out of his mouth in his confirmation hearings, they viewed the program, the I program as torture. But once he, once, as soon as he came on board, partly because he was a savvy politician, partly I think frankly just because of the kind of guy he was, he, he went out of his way to protect and defend the agency, for instance fighting against the public release of the OLC memos. Uh, when he had no conceivable reason, frankly, or benefit to him for doing so, simply because he thought it wasn't the right thing to do. And that was, I found that immensely uh, admirable and courageous on his part. So, so as long as we have leaders, future leaders, with the kind of stuff that Leon Panetta has, then I think there's reason for optimism. Thanks for joining us, John. Good luck with the book. Good luck with uh, confronting Code Pink today. Um, and uh, join us again. Thank you, Ben. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Gregory McNeil and the folks at Pepperdine University Law School for facilitating the conversation with Rizzo. Our music, as always, is performed by Sophia Yan. I would be remiss if I didn't remind you to review, rate, and share the Lawfare podcast by whatever means are available to you to do so. It's important, guys. Spread the word. Make a nuisance of yourselves. Thanks for listening. Acast powers the world's best podcasts. Here's an episode we recommend. What up, though? I'm Jalen Rowe. I partner with the New York Post to bring you the Renaissance Man podcast. Each week, we're discussing the latest trends in culture, fashion, entertainment, travel, food, and more. My most recent guest is none other than the legendary makeup artist, Bobby Brown. I talked to Bobby about the changes she's seen in the beauty industry and using your insecurities to drive your career. You can find the Renaissance Man podcast every Thursday on Apple, Spotify, or any of your. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.